Glad you're here. Welcome to ANC. Um, uh, we're kind of in a countdown. There's not too many services left here. I wonder if we'll be nostalgic about Bailey, Trey. You think we will? No way. Trey's like, nope. <laughs> Everybody's nostalgic about Jackie's. Is any, how many of you guys remember services at Jackie's? There was these odd frogs painted on the back wall. They were horrible. Horrible art. You know, it was almost as bad as, can anybody pick out the most confounding thing in the room? How can you not get two black squares the same size? Look at this. Every single square is a different size. You notice that, Larry King, back there? It makes me crazy. The frogs, at least the bear, the Bailey bear, I think was computer generated. You know, you guys ever noticed the bear back there? We put the Eucharist right in front of the mouth of the bear just to be sure you really want this. But the frogs at Jackie's were legendary. I don't know that we'll have great memories of this building other than... um, It's been a good season. We met a lot of you here, but we're about to move up to South Lamar, 2701 South Lamar uh, in a few weeks. We're looking at the third Sunday, perhaps the second Sunday of January, but somewhere in that area. So we're winding down. No more crazy fan that doesn't work or does. And that's going to make me so much more at at peace in the room. Actually, it won't. There'll be quirks there too. So yeah, like maybe it won't be 40 degrees inside that sanctuary because we'll be paying the bill on that. So we're going to be sure it's, you know, a nice 82, so we'll be wearing t-shirts. Anyway, right, right? Said Phoenix. Yeah, the wind shifts and they're frozen, right? And the rest of us who lived, who did our time up north, we feel like it's a great weakness to admit a jacket, don't we? Right, Buffalo, right, Philadelphia? We're like, yeah, no, no, it, the snow has to come over my flip-flops and actually touch my bare skin for me to actually put on a long sleeves. Anybody trying to tough it out and be, be really cool down here in the south? Get over it. It's the weather blood thins. I'm just telling you, none of this is on my notes, Laura. I'm so sorry. So uh, we're in the middle of a series. I don't know if it's actually even the middle yet, uh, but we tend to take our time around here, but we're looking at all the times that Jesus quotes the Old Testament. You know, it turns out he's a pretty decent interpreter of the scriptures. Isn't that interesting? He's a pretty good interpreter. Imagine that. We're in no rush, and we've been known to take our time so long that, like, pretty sure all my kids were born at some point during the series in Matthew. And my oldest is, you know, 19, and my youngest is 10. So we take our time. You know that. Um, but it's interesting because I'm so obsessed with the words of this young rabbi. We name, we, his name is Jesus. We call him Jesus of Nazareth. But I'm so obsessed with this. You know, there's something powerful about when God speaks. If all that is was created when God spoke, there still is amazing capacity to create in the words of Jesus. And so that's where we hover. That's kind of where we go to. That's kind of where we always come back to. I never get tired of letting my heart be the target of these words. And it's amazing. Every time you turn the words over, they mean something different. Have you figured that out? That's the gospel. Now, that's not true about religion. Pretty much every time you flip that over, it hurts, right? But the, 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 the message of Jesus is not that way. So our text today is like one of those bath toys. If your kids ever brought home one of those bath toys, it looks a little bit like a pill. But if you put it in the bath, at some point the pill dissolves and it becomes like this big thing. Nobody, nobody has any idea what I'm talking about. Jada is the only child who figures out how to get these. Today's text is a little bit like that. Holly has one of those. Holly, can I have it? It's in your pocket, isn't it? I'm just joking. There's more than what meets the eye at first glance. Um, And today's passage is on oaths. Not Quaker oaths, but oaths, promises. And so there's more here than we're going to see at the first read. And so I'm going to dig into this. So let's read that. Let's read our passage today. It comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 5. Jesus is still doing the Sermon on the Mount. Here's what he says, verse 33. He says, again, you have heard it said, heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill 
to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Pray with me very briefly. Holy Spirit, make this real to us today. Show us our hearts and show us your heart in this, in this passage. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, open question. I'm actually expecting some answers, so, so get ready. What is he aiming at? What is Jesus talking about here? What are we, what's he talking about when he says, don't make oaths at all? Somebody help me out. Don't make promises you can't keep. Somebody else. Tell the truth. Yeah. It makes you think that we're not as powerful as we think we are. Don't right. Don't act. Don't don't put into play something that is not really yours to put into play. So like, don't drop names, kind of like, right? Something like that. Don't swear by the city of Jerusalem. Of course. We know that, that would, he's talk, really talking about Austin, right? The city of the great king. <laughs> Anybody else want to shed some light on this? Yeah. Right. So, it's, you know. Here's what we know to be true about the Sermon on the Mount. He keeps doing this thing where he says, hey, you've heard this, but I tell you this. So obviously this meant something to the people of the time. So, so it means a little less to us because we have lawyers and laws and things of that nature. It's just a little different, but there's something here that I think is worth looking at. Now, there are some super fundy. Somebody said they like the word fundy at one of my dinners for 10. They're like, oh, I feel so seen when you say the word fundy. That's just short for fundamentalist. If that doesn't matter to you, Andrew got it. If it doesn't matter to you, don't worry about it. But there are some super fundy groups that would say, this is scripture's prohibition on any kinds of promises. And so there are or have been people in history who take no oaths for marriage. They, take, they swear no honesty before the court. Um, they, they get involved in zero legal proceedings because they think that what Jesus is saying is we're not to promise anything. And of course, that is a wide adventure in missing the point, as is generally the case for anything from that extreme fundamentalist sort of angle. But there are, see, and the reason we know that's not the case is because there's, there's actually passages in the scripture that say, swear only by the name of God. So we're getting after something here. Deuteronomy 6, for example, says this, fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of other peoples around you. Deuteronomy 10 says this, fear the Lord your God and serve him, hold fast to him, and take your oaths in his name. So it's not a prohibition on promises or a prohibition on oaths per se. This is an interesting build. Jesus has just got through talking about divorce and marriage, which is its own kind of oath, right? Certainly he's not saying there ought to be no promises, there ought to be no oaths. There's more here in this teaching than a simple general prohibition on making promises. If this is in keeping with the theme of the previous little subtexts, then Jesus is identifying something that his audience would have understood, and he's saying, I'm upping the ante. He's saying, this is what you've been told. I'm telling you it goes deeper. He's saying something like, you've been told not to murder. I tell you don't hate. You, you've been told not to take your, your, your neighbor's wife. I'm telling you not even to desire that thing. So what Jesus is after here is, is something along those lines if the logical framework holds, which I think it does. 
This is not just a question of compliance. Jesus is after a heart transformation. And we said this last week, that he actually relocates the hope of, of all forms of belief to, to transformation of the heart, not the modification of behavior. And this is how this young rabbi is innovating. Here's what I think you have to catch to understand this passage. Jesus is shifting the focus from those inside realities, right? Anger, murder, lust, adultery, putting aside relationships for trivial reasons. And he's moving in the direction from something inside to something that's distinctly community-based. This conversation is shifting from character to community. And so we ought to pay attention. I think the best way I know to describe what Jesus is aiming at is simply this. He's calling us to be the kind of people who say what they mean and mean what they say. And this community of people that he's beginning to describe don't need legal devices or criminal contraptions to keep us straight. Sorry if you're one of the attorneys in the room and this is, how, this is the ply that provides food for your table. But Jesus is saying, I'm describing the kind of community that doesn't need legal penalty for breaking the word because we are the kind of people who just say yes and just say no. You see, he's beginning to paint a picture of a community of people who speak truth. And that's all they speak. So this is going to get tough. They live in honesty and then they live in truth. They speak to one another in such a way that no contract is needed. Why? Well, because as the previous passage points out, it's possible to technically comply and yet not be transformed. It's possible to fulfill your technical duties and still not be the kind of person that Jesus is describing. What is he after? He's after a new humanity, and he's beginning to enflesh it. He's beginning to incarnate it, if you want to use that word. He's beginning to model what that new humanity looks like. It's conceived in love by God through the scandalous invitation of a probably 13-year-old poor gal, teenager. He's beginning to put flesh on the new humanity, and he's inviting us into this. This announcement of the kingdom is not about a new compliance scheme to make God happy with new regulations and requirements. In fact, it's the opposite of that. The gospel of Jesus runs totally the opposite direction. In fact, I would suggest this little sermon is the final shot in the head to compliance as a way of making God smile. It's the total undoing of whatever remains of our notions of goodness based on behavior, based on external performance. You've heard it said, but I tell you, you've heard it said, I'm telling you it runs deeper. This is the launch of a new community that lives by a higher law. Paul would go on to call this the law of love. John the Beloved would claim that our only hallmark and seal of being different is that we love ourselves differently. Jesus is beginning to move in that direction. You see, the new humanity that Jesus is describing is a joint effort between God and humankind, between the Virgin Mary and the Holy Spirit who moved over her in procreative ways. But it won't be built on performance and it won't be built on compliance, but a total overhaul of our mythology about God and ourselves. I feel like I say this a lot, except these words are in my head 24-7. They're only in your head Sunday morning. So deal with this here. Plus, I worked, time out from podcast, I worked for a preacher who basically said the same thing every Sunday. I feel like this is what, this is the season, so I'm giving myself permission to just go where I think the scripture goes. This is a season of calling us back to something much more profound than technical compliance with the law. You see, God's smile is not at stake. It's not at risk. It's not up for grabs based on your next choice. Somehow we have to deal with the fact that we are the bullseye of God's love. I'm going to try to say that softer so you don't think I'm yelling at you. When I raise my voice, I mean it. It's because I'm German, right? 
These are the lies we tell ourselves. You see, you could call this a revolution of sorts. You could call this counterculture. Either way, this is a total coup d'etat designed, designed by heaven to shock us into a different kind of thinking. But not because of its new layer of shame and guilt. Not because of a new list of things we have to do or addition of new behavioral requirements like most other religious innovations that come after and before Jesus. It's a new layer. It's a new thing you have to watch. It's a new thing you have to pay attention to. That's not what this is. This isn't a new layer. This is a new game altogether. And I believe that is just what Jesus is trying to say. Everything changes after this message. Everything. You see, the glue, the operating principle, the driving motive, the foundational paradigm of the kingdom that Jesus is describing is love and it's truth-telling. Oaths are now unnecessary because we are truth-tellers by nature. We mean what we say and we say what we mean. But here's the deal. We are so accustomed to dishonesty that we scarcely even notice it's the color of the water we swim in. Think about it. Our entire society is moved by advertising which is built on false realities and lies that tell us literally untruths about almost everything, right? About happiness, contentment, about purpose, about sex, about value, about all of it. It's all built on lies. Fast cars don't make you happy. I know this to be true because I have a minivan. Wait, that doesn't make sense. Beautiful women don't, make, don't flock to you because of your aftershave. Lo and behold, but sit in front of your TV for 10 minutes during a football game. That's the lie they're telling you, right? Ooh, this is what success looks like, right? Beautiful women follow men that don't have bald spots. Seriously? Nobody smiles when you use a particular kind of laundry unless there's a camera, a laundry soap, unless there's a camera focusing on you, right? I mean, this is not how actually life works, right? Coca-Cola doesn't make your friends more interesting and more politically correct and more racially mixed while you all ride around in the hood of a car with no seatbelts. It doesn't actually happen. It's all built on falseness. It's all built on lies. It's all, it, it's all designed through dishonesty to pull us in a direction that makes us buy something. It's a cheese snack on a fish hook, and the joke is on us, right? Wait for it. You'll catch that. That next college degree doesn't make you learned or smart or interesting. It's all built on dishonesty. The whole system is built on dishonesty. It's lies and it's untrue. Our world is so full of lies and untruths that we make movies about what outlandish scenario it must be if all of a sudden Jim Carrey can say nothing but the truth, what he's thinking. And we all laugh. And we laugh in this sort of ironic way because he actually isn't capable of speaking untruth and yet Jesus is describing a community incapable of speaking lies. But forget about all that. Forget about the products and the advertising. I'm sorry if that's your degree. Forget about all that. People who design windows to make us walk into stores because we just what, want to give our money away. What concerns me most is not our dishonesty, the dishonesty of the system. What concerns me most are the lies we tell ourselves. Now hang on. Put your seatbelt on. Reach down to the right. There's a little belt. Plug it in. See, the new humanity that Jesus is beginning to describe is gonna to live totally differently. We are a people, he simply says, whose yes means yes and whose no means no. No extra explanation needed, no extra collateral needed, no yes because so-and-so said so, or no because the city of the great king is vouchsafed for me. We are a people of simple speech, a people of truth. We lie to each other constantly, but I'm more concerned about the lies we tell ourselves. 
You say, come on, preacher man, I don't tell myself, li- t- tell myself lies. lies. Why would I do that? Listen, quick quiz. Make a mental note here. Do you tell yourself that you have to earn your keep? Do you tell yourself that God is ashamed of you? Do you tell yourself that you are your failures? That you'll never outrun your shadows? That you'll never be anything more than those things that have happened to you? Do you wake up every single day and find evidence to believe that somehow you are unworthy of human love? Is that you? Are those not all lies? You see the truth you tell yourself and the lies you tell yourself deep inside your own mind? It's all untrue. And the worst part is, is that's almost the only thing some of us tell ourselves. If you spoke to somebody like that with words, you'd get a knuckle sandwich and you'd be locked up. We don't treat each other that way. Oh, but listen to the voice inside your head. Constant, relentless shame. You know, we don't actually need enemies. We do all that degrading and shaming and humiliating. We just do it right inside. It's built into the OS. It's built into the operating system. It's just how we are. I'm pretty sure I've said this in every creative way I can think over the last four years. But this inner narrative of lies is what Jesus is coming to impact. He's got very little to say about church. He's not terribly concerned about, about religion. He's hopelessly disappointing on all of those levels, but he is fiercely focused on this inner narrative. This is the mythology he comes to change. You see, he offers no reconfiguration of external problems and stimulants. He offers no realignment to outside factors, no social reengineering. He offers you a heart transformation that changes it all. He offers us a truer, a more right, we can make up words in Texas, a writer, a deeper, a wiser way to internalize and accept what is. So here's what I know. My only gift is saying what people are thinking. I'm not that clever. But I've been thinking about these words all week. Let's get super concrete. Hopefully this makes you sweat just a little bit in a room that's 42 degrees. What if you actually spoke truth to yourself? What if your inner narrative was actually truth-telling? What if you spent your effort telling yourself how wonderfully and magnificently you were made? What if you told yourself that you are and have always been God's undying obsession? Go ahead, tell me. Is that not true? Well, I, I guess it's true, but, but, but listen. What if you spent your time telling yourself that? What if you stopped holding your mistakes over your head and you just went with the fact that the Bible describes God as being forgetful of the things we've neglected and done wrong? How can a God who knows all things suddenly unknow those foibles, fumbles, drops, habits, mistakes, left turns? What if you told yourself that story? What if you stopped with all the shame and all the comparison? Who cares about the neighbor? What if you stop telling yourself that that next accomplishment, that next possession, the next relationship, the next job or degree or child or whatever you fill in the gap, what if you stop telling yourself that that's what's going to make you happy? What if you stop telling yourself that happiness is something in the future? What if you actually spoke truth to yourself? What if you spoke truth to your spouse or to your loved one, to your partner? Think about this. What if you spoke over them what God says over them? Primarily, that they are loved beyond imagination, that there's nothing they can do to add one ounce of love to the eternal, unending love that he has already for them. What if you spoke those words over them? 
What if you told them that of all the galaxies God ever made, his most prized possession is them? Tell me, is this not true? Go ahead, give it to me, quote it to me. What if that was our voice? What if we told our loved one every chance we got that they have nothing to prove, they've got nothing to earn, and they've got nothing to lose in relationship to us? What if we told them that we see them every time the brilliance leaks from their life? Boy, you talk about revolutionizing your love relationship. What if those were the words? What if we spoke that level of truth to each other? Hang on, parents. You know where I'm going. What if we spoke this over our children? Now, hang on. What I'm trying to do this morning is I'm trying to spark your imagination so that you can begin to glimpse a new kind of community that Jesus is giving birth to. What if we spoke this truth over our children? What if we pointed out their beauty and their brilliance, their worth, their value, instead of constantly harping on the things they do wrong or don't do right or need to learn? What if we spoke their beauty and their brilliance into existence more than their weakness or their blind spot? What if we literally spoke into existence a world around them that makes room for them to experiment, right, to fail, to get up, to move on, to inhale a Swisher Sweet every once in a while and then puke it up because we knew that was going to happen because that's not smokable. Anything you buy at a gas station, just let it go. Just saying. What if we created space around them by speaking? Some of you have absolutely. Christian college people don't know what a Swisher Sweet is. Please. They come in peach flavor, y'all. Man, we got to lighten up at A&C. If you're visiting, I'm super sorry, but this is as unfiltered as we always are. So actually, I'm not very sorry. I've got, teen, I've got four out of five of my children are teenagers, so you'll have to forgive all of those connections. But what if we spoke literally into existence around them, the kind of space that allowed them to swerve once in a while and get up? What if we spoke the kinds of things around them that made it so plain to their heart that their dignity is never at stake, that they are loved, they are deeply loved? What if we spoke that kind of truth? What if we stopped speaking untruths to them simply? What if we didn't lie to them about the future? What if we quit promising things we can't deliver? What if we quit promising to them that love is never safe and without risk and the world is never going to revolve around them? What if we just quit saying the wrong things and in that way spoke truth to them? Here's one for you. You ready for this? What if we spoke truth to our parents? Some of you are like, okay, stop. What if we actually told them what we need? Some of us have spent 40 years on this, on this planet going round and round and round the sun and have never yet found the ability to simply show up, speak up, and say what we need in the presence of our parents. What if we spoke truth to our parents? What if we used our voice regardless of their response? How about this? Their response is not on you. That's their work. Your work is to show up. I wish I could tell you I have this mastered. I wish I could tell you it didn't hurt the same way it did when I was 15 to do this. Some things never change. What if we were able to tell them how we feel and how we're impacted by some of the things they do and say and don't do and don't say? Some of you are beginning to actually imagine this world I'm talking about. It gets really real 
when we're talking about our parents, doesn't it? What if we could stay in our own, we could keep the flight pattern, we could hold the course of our own inner wellness, even though they flash up and flare up and torture us with silence or whatever it is? What if we could hold our trajectory without resorting to defense or attack or counterattack or cruelty? What if we could just speak truth? Now, warning, if you ever give your kids this permission, they might just take you up on this, and you might get to hang on and you might get to hang on really hard through some things that are half true and some things that are more hurt than not, and you might get to actually see the world that you have created because you've given them voice to speak it, and then you get to make it right, and it's never too late. But if you give this permission to your kids, if you speak this kind of truth to each other, get ready, some people are going to show up, and some of the things that we did not intend to happen did. What if we could tell our parents how their decisions affect our kids, right? How when they love our adopted one differently than they do our bio kids. Uh-oh, don't say that, preacher. Mm-hmm. That only applies to a few families in the room, but you know the pain I'm talking about. What if we could speak up and show up and contend for our own voice in this place, making no apologies for taking up oxygen on the earth? Some of us live in a permanent state of apology. I'm so sorry for being here. I'm so sorry for... What if we could speak truth? Finally, listen to this. What if we could speak truth to one another, right? Jesus is talking about a community. Let's think about friends for a second. Oh, this one's hard, guys. What if we could be fully present to our friends and the members of our community? What if we could speak up when they hurt us? Not build coalitions, not sidewind around and figure out ways to get people on our side, but to go straight to the person and say, you know, well, when you say that thing, here's how it impacts me. What if we could speak that kind of truth? What if we didn't have to just pull away silently emotionally and let them hang out to dry, giving them no data as to what hurt? Because God forbid we speak the truth in that way. We're just going to lurk and hide. We're just going to pull away, and they're going to wonder one day, what happened? What if we could speak truth into that vacuum? What if it wasn't our job to panic and fret about the response to our truth? Our only job was to speak the truth. If you're paying attention... And these are just some words. None of this is exhaustive. You put the wheels on the wagon, that makes sense to you. But if you're paying attention, you'll notice something. All of the concentric circles of the relationships of your life require one thing first, and that is that you speak truth to yourself. Listen, I don't know where your mind is going. You might say, bro, listen, I speak truth, and if I actually do, what's going to happen is I'm going to hurt everyone in my life. Now, let's, let's have a little definition time here to talk about what I mean by truth. A couple of things you've got to keep in mind. Number one, Jesus is truth. Therefore, anything that is actually truth runs the same direction as the message and the teaching of Jesus. You said that's awful broad, but listen to me. Not everything you've heard about Jesus is truth. In fact, most of what some of us have heard is basically organized hazing. We call that religion, right? Most of what we know about religion ends up having very little in common to do with Jesus. In fact, it costs us a lot of money and it makes us mean. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about Jesus. He's the truest thing God has ever said. He's the truest thing about God and he's the truest thing about us. Truth cannot be destructive to people. You say, I can't speak truth. It will hurt people. Listen, if it's destructive to people, that's not the truth I'm talking about. Truth destroys false thinking and misguided pretense and truth deals with lies of all kinds, but truth is never judgmental or shameful or self-obsessed or self-promoting. You see the difference? 
When I say a community that speaks truth, I'm not talking about those things. You see, truth sets free. If anything could be more succinctly said, I dare you to find the words. Truth is Jesus and truth sets free. Truth stays near. Truth gets dirty and stays involved. Truth is engaged. Truth is not okay with injustice or anything that crushes human dignity. I'm not saying be cruel. I'm saying be truthful, which is something different. The truth I'm inviting you to consider as a touchstone for good living always, always, always has the well-being of human dignity in its, in its, in its focus. Here's my point. If anything is to stand the litmus test, test of truth and that we could actually call truth, it'll have to harmonize with what we know to be true about God and Jesus Christ. It's not very complicated. It's actually pretty simple. His stated purpose for coming into the world was to set it free, to turn it loose, to make it right, not to judge and not to condemn. I'm not talking about those people in your life who say, well, I'm just going to tell you the truth and they proceed to deconstruct your dignity. That's not what I'm talking about. This means there are far, actually far fewer things that are true than many of us have been trained to believe, you see. And there's a lot of things, if we speak truth, that we're going to have to stop saying that we call truth that actually isn't. So number one, here's the rules of engagement. Truth is Jesus, and truth harmonizes with the message of Jesus. Number two, and if Jesus is truth and he spoke truth, then the trick to speaking to one another must be to emulate his example, Right? must be to say what he says, must be to do what he does. Sounds easy, right? I know, let's make bracelets. And let's say, what would Jesus do? My favorite one is, what would Scooby do? (laughs) When Jesus was pressed in the book of John, how do you do these things? What's the secret sauce? How do you make this work? Jesus said on multiple occasions, just in the chapter 8 alone of John, he says, here's the secret. I do what I see the Father doing, and I say what I see the Father saying. That's the bottom line. Here's the catch. If we're going to only say what the Father says and only do what the Father does, it's going to limit most of what we love to say to each other, most of what we love to complain about and whine about and counterattack. It's going to actually mean we're going to have to sit still enough to understand what does God think when he thinks of the people in your life? What does God say over your spouse? You say, ah, man, you don't know. It's been 25 years of struggle. Listen, when you can say what God says over your spouse, everything changes. I'm just telling you. So the, tr- the, the, the trick is, Jesus is truth, and truth harmonizes with Jesus. And all we have to do is what he did. He did and he said what the Father did and said. That leaves a lot of stuff out. That leaves a lot of stuff out. And that's Okay. We're talking about a new kind of community. So I know some of you can barely imagine what this might look like. Some of us take every inhale in, in, in a painful sense of not belonging. We can't even imagine showing up, much less speaking truth. Some of you can barely imagine what a community might look like, what marriage might look like, what your relationship with your kids might look like if we only spoke truth to one another. Some of you, I'll, be, I'll admit, it's out on the fringes of my own ability to imagine. But it seems to me like what Jesus is suggesting. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. No collateral needed. No co-signers needed. If you're anything like me, you've glimpsed it over the years. You've seen little moments when it was true, And then you've just resorted back to the world that we exist in. But you just need to be encouraged to believe 
that the prevailing reality of your life is that what God says is true. What God thinks of you is actually true. It's not made to, to, to force you to comply and to come to church. Forget coming to church. It's not the point. You are his obsession. Harmonize with that. So let these words settle into your heart and into your mind. James, Jesus' younger brother, who then later after Jesus ascends on high becomes one of the pastors of the church in Jerusalem. James, in his book, writes basically a smorgasbord of how to do community. And he says in chapter 5, verse 12, he says, above all, now imagine, hang on, look at me, not the screen, look at me. You can't see the screen anyway because the lights are on. Above all, he says, all these things I'm telling you, do this, do that, do this, don't do this, do this. Here's how it looks. But above all things, why would he say this? Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. Here's my question for you. Could it be that simple? We've spent 21 centuries arguing about how to do this right, fighting over about who's in and who's out. How could it be this simple, James? Thanks. Unless it is. Unless this simple truth can actually reorganize the polarity of every relationship in our life. Here's your job every day. You ready for some homework? Band, your homework is to find your way to the stage. Band. I literally watched a couple of them just wake up. No, I didn't. I'm joking. Here's your homework. Before you engage the world around you every day, before you start speaking untruths to yourself, harmonize all of that with what we know to be true about God through Jesus Christ in the world. And what is that? That he has come for us, that all things are new, that all things can be forgotten, that we can move in a new direction, we can build on a new foundation. That's our job, which means some of us extroverted people are gonna get to be a lot more silent, and some of us introverted people are gonna need to find some words. This is what creates life. This is what creates love. This is what creates the space around kids that actually can raise wholehearted and resilient kids because God knows the world needs those. Not wounded souls who wonder if they're worth anything. That's what our brokenness creates. But our only job every day is to let our yes be yes and our no be no, to speak that truth and watch everything else change. Join, join me on your feet. Let's pray. I don't know about you, but I think sometimes it's the simple things that really catch my attention. And this word this week has just been, it's just been having one of those arguments with my inner narrative loops, and it's been reorganizing things, and I just hope that you can grab onto something today and be encouraged. It's not complex. This is not complexity makes it better. This is... This is an almost mystifying simplicity that Jesus is describing. So let's pray that God could use us in our lives, in our relationships to become that.